This morning, the sermon is entitled, Cherishing. And as you know, Tuesday is going to be Valentine's Day, and a time when many in the world reflect and think about love in ways they perhaps do not other times of the year. Whereas I'm quick to confess that Valentine's Day does not find its way on the church calendar of ancient history, there is some usefulness to Valentine's Day that in that it gives us a chance to relate to people who may not know Jesus yet, who may not go to church, about the matter of love. And my prayer is that this topical sermon entitled Cherishing will assist us to uh, love persons that God has put into our path for Jesus' sake and with his kind of love to the end that he would be made much of and others that don't yet know him would come into the family of God through faith. And so we want to talk about love this morning and how to best cherish and love the people in our lives, husbands and wives and uh, children if we have them and grandchildren if we have them and our friends and our church brothers and sisters in Christ and our parents if they're still with us on earth, how to love and cherish lost persons and yes, even our enemies, people who can consider us their enemies just because we love Jesus. You know, when Beth and I were dating, we met at Dallas Seminary, grew in love there and and married between our first and second years at the seminary. But in the course of, of, of dating and talking and spending a lot of time together, we felt that we'd really gotten to know each other quite well. And therefore, when we knew we loved each other, it was God's plan for us to get married. We, we, uh, I asked Beth to marry me, and she agreed, and we got married. But I realized that I didn't really know everything that I needed to about Beth, and she didn't know everything she needed to know about me. On Just on our honeymoon, one morning, I got up early before Beth. I went to the pool at the resort, and I was sitting in the chaise lounge in the sun, and I was reading the newspaper. And I was reading the USA Today sports section. And Beth came out looking beautiful, and she said, good morning. I said, good morning. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm reading the, sp- the uh, sports section in USA Today. She said, you like sports? I thought, whoa, I guess I didn't talk about that. I love sports. But it wasn't just a one-way street. You know, I didn't realize she always looked beautiful when we were d- dating and then engaged and still looks beautiful. But it takes, in the mornings, those first mornings when we were husband and wife and she'd be in the, the, the restroom getting ready for the day and, man, she uses a lot of hairspray. <laughs> I had no idea that a beautiful woman often uses that much hairspray. And so, uh, but I like the end result. She she's, continues to be beautiful to me. You know, there are some fundamental differences between men and women uh, when it comes to how we view things. And I'm getting to the point of how to cherish your wife if you're a husband or cherish your husband if you're a wife. So there's reasons I'm going through these things before we get to the Word of God. There are some fundamental differences between the way men and women look at life, receive messages, store information, and all these different things. One is not right and one is not wrong. Men are not right and men are not wrong. Women are not right and women are not wrong. They're just different. For instance, men, we think and do life like ice cube trays. There's all these little compartments in our thinking, in our minds, and the two compartments never mix. There's a work compartment, a marriage compartment, a money compartment, a church compartment. That's how we think. So when you ask a guy, what are you thinking, he probably will say, I don't know, I'm a guy. But with a woman, it's different. They're not ice cube trays. They are bowls of delicious spaghetti And all of the strands of the spaghetti are mingled together, family, work, church, community, um, so forth and so on. Not different, not, excuse me, different, not one better than the other. Also, men are more like uh, root beer mugs, A&W root beer mugs. Not too long ago, I used that example. 
With an A&W root beer mug, if it's on the edge of your table and you knock it off by mistake and it hits the tile floor, it will not shatter. It may scratch and it may chip. That's what men are like. Women, thank God, women are not A&W root beer mugs. Thank God, A&W root beer mugs are men. Women are fine crystal goblets. Beautiful, lovely, delicate, gentle. You have a beautiful crystal goblet on the table and you brush it and it falls on the tile floor, it smashes. And that's why married men are to treat their goblet, their crystal goblet gift of a wife, with understanding. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, some of you are married to men who are disobedient to the word this morning. They're not even Christians. Listen, this is for you. Some of you are dating a man who's not a Christian. You shouldn't be doing that, by the way. Every date is a potential mate. Don't evangelize, young lady, when you date. You want to date a growing Christian man who's already a Christian before you start dating him. If I had a dollar for every Bahamian woman who's come to me in two years asking for counsel and help for an ungodly man who faked to be a Christian before they got married and wasn't a Christian, I would be rich. It's sad. Anyway, if you have an unsaved husband or boyfriend, this is what God says. Crystal goblet, this is what God says. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As you observe their chaste and respectful behavior and let your adornment be not merely external, braiding of the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women of old who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's a little L, not a capital L. Calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So the crystal goblets, the wives, God says, stand under your husband, with chaste and gentle, quiet spirit. Men, married men, me, you who are married, you husbands, likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Don't push the crystal goblet God has given you to the very edge of the table. Bring her to the center of the table and live with her in an understanding way. It goes on. As with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's the deal, guys, who are married. You have unanswered prayers? Is it because you're not living with your crystal goblet in an understanding way? God says if we fail to live with our crystal goblet in an understanding way, God will not answer our prayers. It's that serious. So I'm saying that men are different and women are different. 
Men are ice cube trays, women are spaghetti, men are root beer mugs, women are fine crystal goblets, but there's more. For a man, the home is a place to rest. That's why he throws his stuff down when he walks in the door, lady. He's just a place to rest. For a woman, home's much more than that. For a woman, a home is a place to decorate so that it's an expression of her personality. Another difference. You talk to any man long enough, and he'll probably get talking to you about his job. Get two men talking to each other long enough, and the question will come up, what do you do? If you, on the other hand, talk with a woman long enough, she will probably eventually get around to her kids. And if two women talk to each other long enough, one will ask the other, do you have any children? Just different. Men, in broad sweeping terms, are generally comfortable talking about facts. Women, in general terms, are far more comfortable talking about feelings. Men, we try to avoid grouping together with others as much as possible. It's true. Women, on the other hand, tend to avoid going it alone as much as possible. Now, here's a good one. I'm told that on average, on average, men speak about 10,000 words a day. Some of you are less. And I'm told on average that women speak about 30,000 words a day. Some of you are more. You heard about the preacher who became very dependable. He preached 30 minutes on the dot every single Sunday. Without fail, you could set your watch. This one Sunday, the dear preacher went 60 minutes. And the chairman of the elder board came at the end of the sermon and said, Pastor, uh, you were a little long-winded today. You went double time. Said, yeah, I'm so sorry. My wife and I both wear dentures, and I put her teeth in by mistake. <laughs> in the course of the joy of being a pastor for over 30 years, I've had the joy and the challenge at times of meeting with many different men and women. Some are married to each other, and they come for counsel and advice. Others are not yet married to each other. They're engaged to be married, and they're doing some premarital counseling with me. Men and women come to me all the time. And what I often do is use an explanation on the differences between men and women by doing something like this. I ask them to imagine if there were a 1,000 different women lined up on this parking lot in a line. And they would be all different, utterly unique like snowflakes in their DNA. In many other ways, they'd be entirely unique, precious people. But if you press them long enough and you asked enough questions, you would find that a thousand women have the same basic need. It's to be cherished. Every woman has a need to feel special, uh, cherished. If you did the same exercise with men, thousand men, unique, precious individuals, all with different DNA, if you press those men hard enough, long enough, and ask enough questions, you would find that those thousand different men have the same basic underlying fundamental need, and that is the need to be respected. Respected. Women need to be cherished, and men need to be respected. So it ought not to surprise us that in Ephesians chapter 5, the principal passage on the role of husbands and wives in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, there are three commands to wives and there are three commands to husbands. So let's get after it. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, 
Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the head, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church." Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Men, especially married men, the sound of my voice, three times this passage commands us to love our wives. The Greek word is agape. Agape loving is God's kind of loving. It's the highest kind of loving possible. Agape loving discerns the greatest need in the one who is loved and then sacrificially gives to meet that need without concern for the cost or the payback. That is God's love. That is agape love. And that is the kind of love that God commands married men to have for their wives. God says it in verse 25, verse 28, and verse 33. Now, wives, lest you be left out, God has three commands for you in this same passage. And the three times, married women who are Christians are told to be subject to their husbands, or the Greek word is hupotasso. Hupo means under, tasso means to stand. And so a woman who is subject to her husband is submitted to her husband, who is hupotassoing her husband, is standing under his servant leadership, not as a doormat, not as a chattel, with dignity and orderliness and functionality for harmony and glory to be brought to God's name. And so three times God commands the married amongst us who are women to stand under your husband, be subject to your husband, respect your husband. Going back to 1 Peter 3, verse 2, the unsaved, um, the unsaved husband who is hard to love, who's contrary to the word of God. It says in 1 Peter 3, just to review what I read earlier in the message, it says in verse 2, talking about godly uh, women and their powerful impact of a chaste and a holy life before their unbelieving husbands, as they, husbands, observe your chaste and respectful behavior. There is nothing as potent for a born-again woman who's married to a non-born-again man as for her to be respectful of him. Sometimes even when he's not respectable. We ought to be respectable men. But I thank God for the times that Beth has shown me respect when I was not respectable because I was sinning. So what have we seen so far? Well, among other things, we've seen that by God's design, women most want to be cherished and men most want to be respected. So if you're a married Christian husband, in the sound of my voice, be a good valentine in 2017 to your wife and year-round. How? Cherish her. Cherish her. I'll give you some suggestions how you can cherish your wife in a moment. Married Christian wife, 
Be a good Valentine to your husband in 2017 and year-round. Respect him. Respect him. I'll give you some suggestions on how you can respect your husband in, later in the sermon. Now, I think I could make a case, an argument, that for a man, being respected also is a way that he's cherished. I'm going to say that I think we can say that when a man feels respect from his wife, he feels like she is cherishing him. And if that is true, then that means the underlying basic need of a man or a woman is to be cherished. Being cherished is a very fundamental root at the core of the thing need for both genders, to be cherished. So who can we cherish this week? Who can we cherish in February? Who can we cherish March, April, May, June, July, August, etc.? Who can we cherish in life? Well, husbands should cherish their wives, and wives should cherish their husbands, and parents should cherish their children, and children should cherish their parents, and friends should cherish their friends, and brothers and sisters in Christ in a church assembly should cherish each other, and Christians should cherish lost people who aren't yet Christians, and Christians should even cherish their enemies. Now, I just want to pull back the curtain on a marriage in the Old Testament between King Solomon, it was his first marriage, and a woman in Scripture only identified as the Shulamite. And some people have problems with the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon because it's rather graphic. It's, it's sensual. It has intimacies between a husband and a wife that are somewhat described. And it's been a controversial book. But I want to tell you before I read you these passages from the Song of Solomon, or I won't read them, I guess, for the sake of time, but reference them, that I believe this is a true literal love story between a true historic husband and a true historic wife. I do not believe it's some code. I don't believe it's some imagery. I don't believe it's some symbolism. I don't believe it's allegory. I believe it's a literal husband loving his literal wife, a literal wife loving her literal husband. It's a romance. The Song of Solomon is a romance manual for married people. God, of course, invented romance, and God, of course, invented intimacies within marriage, and it's Satan who pollutes those things. The container for intimacy Personal intimacy on a sexual level is the, is the marriage. Heterosexual, monogamous, until death us depart, marriage. Fire in a fireplace at a ski lodge is beautiful, useful, and attractive. But you light the fire in the dining room of that same ski lodge, and you've got a problem. Sexual expressions of loyalty and fidelity and intimacy are to be within the fireplace of marriage. If they are allowed to burn outside that God-given container, then you've got a world of trouble. A world of trouble. So I understand the Song of Solomon to be a real story, a historic story between two real people married to each other. The biblical romance manual for married persons, even as we read it today, the book is a celebration of God-honoring and pure and devoted monogamous lifelong marriage. And as I say that, I need to tell you that the book of Song of Solomon has not been short of controversy through the centuries of church history. Historically, the Jews were not even allowed to read the book of Song of Solomon until they were 39 years old. The rabbis wouldn't let them read it until they were 39 Historically, originally, there was a real debate as to whether the book of the Song of Solomon was even scripture. 
because of the subject matter it dealt with. Some said, that can't be Bible. They were wrong. Over the many years, some Bible scholars have not taken the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon at all, literally. Instead, they choose to interpret it as one big allegory, a piece of literature which is chock full of symbols and in great need of explanation. The Jews who have done that have looked at the Song of Solomon as an allegory, and they say the book presents God's romance with Israel. The Gentile Bible scholars who've reduced it to non-literal allegory, they say, no, the Song of Solomon is an allegory about God's romance with the church. I think they're both wrong. The Song of Solomon is an inspired record of a real husband's love with his wife and his real <laughs> wife's love for her husband. When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, you're left with nonsense. The bottom line here is what God has given us when he has given us the book of the Song of Solomon is a helpful and beautiful painting of what romantic love between a husband and wife should look like. So very quickly, let me show you some examples. You may want to take some notes here of the cherishing that takes place between this ancient marriage partners. Let me start with King Solomon. You know why, guys? Because God always starts with us men. God wants us to ask the woman out for a date when we're not married, not her to ask you. God wants us to propose marriage to the woman we're going to marry, not to have the woman propose to us. God always starts with the man because God has made men to be initiators and God has made the fairer sex to be responders and that's the way it ought to be. When we reverse those roles, we get in trouble. So men, let's start with King Solomon. Will you notice very quickly some of the ways that the king cherished his wife, the Shulamite? Number one, he complimented her beauty. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Number two, he complimented her character. Chapter 6, verses 8 to 9. Three, he pointed out their special memories which they held dear. That's chapter 8, verse 5. Number four, he singled her out for his exclusive love. Chapter 2, verse 2. That's before he fell into sin and had hundreds of wives. What a, what a tragedy. But at this point, he had one wife, the wife that God meant for him to have. And at this point, when he was walking close with God, he said, I single you out for my singular, de uh, devoted, and exclusive love. And fifth, he made clear his heart for her. She didn't have to guess. You know, I went back to the 30,000 and the 10,000 words a day thing. You know, men, we, we do our, our relationship with our wives a lot of harm when we don't say enough. Reminds me of the Trappist monk who was in a monastery of silence, and he was allowed to say two words a year. Day came, and he knew he could say two words for the year. First year, he said, bed hard. Then he went back to a year of utter silence at the monastery. The next year came up for him to have his two words. He stood up there. He said to the monsignor, food bad. The mind senior said, you're kicked out, Agassi. All you ever do is complain. <laughs> Sometimes, men, we think that if we do speak our heart, we do speak our feelings that will be jumped upon. That's not true. So this King Solomon, one of the ways he cherished the Shulamite was he made clear what his heart was for her. He spoke. Men speak. Next, will you please notice some of the ways that the Shulamite, King Solomon's wife, cherished him. 
Number one, she welcomed belonging to him and only to him. We see that in chapter 2, verse 4. Second, she saw him as being, quote, the best of the best. She said, you're the best of the best to her husband. That's chapter 5, verses 10 to 16. Third, she pledged her exclusive, loyal love for him. She promised him her exclusive, loyal love in chapter 7, verse 10. Number four, she delighted in any time they could spend together. Chapter 7, verses 11 to 13. And fifth, she publicly expressed her love and her until death do us part commitment to him publicly. Chapter 8, verse 6. And so what we're saying is that the scriptures are teaching us this morning that it is right, it is God's will for us to cherish others so that they know that they are cherished. That's God's will. Whether you're married, single, a widower, a son, a daughter, a parent, a grandparent, a grandchild, a friend, a brother or a sister in Christ. So let's get some practical ways that we can cherish the people God's put into our lives. Let's start with husbands cherishing their wives. Men who are married, actually listen to your wife. Turn off your electronic devices. Listen. And then when she says something, say, excuse me, may I repeat back to you what I believe you said? And then do it. And if you don't get it right, Ask her to say it again and listen carefully. Actively listen to your wife. She will feel cherished. Know your wife's top three needs at any given moment. If I called someone's name, which I won't, and asked them the top three needs of their wife this morning, all of us who are married should know. We should have our PhDs in our wives. If you don't know your wife's top three needs, Driving home, you find out. How do you find out? What's your top three needs? <laughs> it's very scientific. How do you cherish your wife? You sacrifice to meet her needs without grumbling. F.B. Meyer was a very well-known and well-loved Bible teacher and preacher who had a worldwide ministry, F.B. Meyer. He once confided to a friend that he felt welcome in any home in England except his own. His loveless marriage was a source of deep heartbreak. Yet Meyer believed that he, by his aching soul, was being prepared to give love and strength to others, especially to his wife as the time for her death drew near. Cherish your wife. Verbally praise your wife at least once a day. That was an excellent meal. You look so beautiful. I love the way you're patient with our children. Thank you for being on time. Just compliment your wife. Don't take her for granted. Go on a date with your wife at least once a month. I stand before you this morning with clean teeth and a dirty SUV. My Teeth are clean because I have a time appointed to clean my teeth, and I have no time appointed to wash my car. Have a date each month with your wife. Don't miss. Just you and your wife. Someone will babysit for you if the children are a challenge. Someone will do it. 
Regularly pray for your wife. If you want to cherish your wife, regularly pray for her. Ask her how you can pray for her. And then pray. And then after you've prayed, go back to her and say, what about that matter we were praying about? I was praying about that for you. What did God do? Pray for her. Spend time regularly in God's word with your wife. Often say to your wife, look her in the whites of her eyes and say, you know, I chose you and I still choose you. Every day, husband, you tell your wife, look at the whites of her eyes and say, I love you. Every day. What about the wives here today? What about the Christian wives? How can you practically cherish your respective husbands? Well, tell, tell your husband a reason why you respect him at least once a day. You know, you faithfully go to work and you work hard for our family. I respect that. Beth told me the other day, I, I respect you that you've kept your heart only for me with all the women you've met since we've been married. You've kept your heart only for me. Respect your husband for something every day and tell him. Let your husband have the last say once in a while. There's a thought. Let your husband have the last say. Don't always have to have the last say. Beth is excellent with this. Let your husband have the last say. Make your love and acceptance of your husband so very clear F.B. Meyer ministered the word of God with such power and effectiveness around the world, and he had no wind behind his sails at home. He had a wife that didn't express love or acceptance to him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what could have happened if he went into the pulpit every time he taught and preached the word of God knowing that his wife loved him and accepted him? Whew. God's always going to bless his word. Love and accept your husband and make it very clear that you do. Never criticize your husband. Never complain about your husband behind his back. I've told you before, if a lady in our church came and said, you should have heard what Beth said about you in Bible study. I'd say either you misunderstood her or you're a liar. Beth doesn't talk negatively about me in public, and I don't talk negatively about Beth in public. When she sees faults in me, and I have plenty, believe me, Behind closed doors, she'll tenderly say, I'm praying about that. Do you think that's the way to look at it? Just, just very tender. Correction just behind closed doors, and same when I need to speak to her lovingly. Don't, don't ever criticize your husband behind his back. Don't run him down. That's a way that he feels disrespected. Let your husband lead you. Unless it's against the Bible. If your husband wants to lead you against the Bible, don't you follow? You're married to Jesus. But when he wants to lead you, and it's not contrary to Scripture, then be led. You say, but he'll never lead. I have to lead. No, you don't have to lead. Wait. Pray. Wait. Don't get ahead of the Holy Spirit. Don't do what the Holy Spirit told you not to do. He didn't tell you to lead. There is no scripture that tells a married woman to lead her husband. Nowhere. Let him lead you. If he's not leading you in the way of the word, then tell him, I can't do that. It's against the word of God. He said, I don't feel like leading. I'm lazy. I don't know how to lead. Say, I'm praying for you to lead. I'll be here. Lead me when you're ready. I'm waiting. Maybe some men don't lead because women are too quick to jump in to lead. Just a thought. Parents, 
How do you cherish your children, the precious gifts that children are? Well, you actively listen to them, give them your undivided attention. You envision bright futures for your children. You say, Sally, the way that you know how to draw, that God's given you a talent and you're practicing it, there's no telling what your drawing or painting will do in your life going forward, how God will use that. Johnny, you are so clear in how you think and defend your ideas, there's no telling how God will use your abilities and logic to help other people. Envision a bright future for your children. Catch your children doing something right. Hey, you took out the garbage. Woohoo! Catch them doing something right. Encourage them. Lovingly correct them. Give them clear boundaries. By the way, the happy child is the child who knows her boundaries. The happy child is the child who knows his boundaries. When you don't give a child boundaries as the parent, they are parenting you. You are not parenting them. Prince Charles visited Canada many years ago. He was there for a month. At the end of the month, they asked the Duke of Windsor what he thought about um, Canadians. I'm quite quite remarkably impressed with how well Canadian parents obey their children. (laughs) Prince Philip, excuse me, not Charles. How do you love your child? Regularly take them to the Bible. Ask how you can pray for them. Pray for them and follow up to see what God did. This is one that our kids always retracted at, but we did it. In the kitchen, with the kids present, I would take Beth, give her a warm embrace, and give her a big kiss. And I say, with the kids watching, you know, I love you, honey, and we're never, ever going to get a divorce. And the kids would go, oh, that's gross. But I was securing those kids because do you know what? Kids today in America and Canada and perhaps the Bahamas, they're not afraid when they grow up of global warming. They're not afraid of nuclear holocaust. They're not afraid of uh, greening of the earth. They're afraid that their mommy will stop loving their daddy and their mommy and daddy will stop living together. Because six out of ten American marriages end in divorce. So the kid in the American school, let's speak to America, they're most afraid that mommy's going to stop loving their daddy and their daddy's going to stop loving their money. That's what they're terrified about. So when you secure your kids, dad and mom, and you kiss each other in front of them, and you say, we love each other, divorce is a swear word in our vocabularies, we'll never say it, we don't plan to ever have one, we're crazy about each other, we're never getting divorced. They go, oh, gross, but then they smile. (laughs) Then they smile, because it secures them. That's the way to cherish your children is to love their mommy or to love their daddy. Grandparents cherish children. Counsel them when life happens. Have them involved in your lives. Counsel them about what the Bible says in these situations you're in. Actively listen to them. Give them of your time. You know, one of the definitions a little child gave about what is a grandparent, it's the saddest thing. The child said, a grandparent's the only adult who's any time for me. Make it count, Grandma. Make it count, Grandpa. Make it plain to your grandchild that you just love and look forward to all the times you spend together. 
That's how you cherish a grandchild. Remind them often that you pray for them. Ask them how you can pray for them. Then follow up after you prayed for them. How do things go? Take them to church with you, especially if their parents don't take them to church. You bring your grandchildren to church here if their parents don't bother to bring them to a church. Tell each of your grandchildren often, I love you. I'm so glad God gave you to our family. What about church members, our brothers and sisters in Christ? We need to be cherishing each other. How do we do that? Cherish your brothers and sisters in a church family. Now, here comes a convicting thought. Make it to the worship service on time. Why would I say that? Because when you come in late, as quiet as a mouse, you still distract everybody who, around you from why they're here. Now, I know there are extenuating circumstances, traffic and other things. I understand but some people are consistently late every single Sunday. You can set your watch by it. That is not treating the person in the pulpit or the other people in the pew respectfully or cherishing them. The way I was raised, and I wasn't raised perfect by any means, my daddy taught me if you're five to ten minutes early, you're on time. How else do you cherish a brother or a sister in Christ? Well, I'll tell you something, man. If there is a sister in the Lord after dark at a ministry meeting in our building on this campus, and she is not accompanied by a man, don't you let, ever let a, one of our Christian sisters walk to her car in the dark on that parking lot unaccompanied. You show brotherly love and say, I'll walk you to your car. She has a husband with her, that's, of course, he'll look after that. But there are a lot of ladies who come to the campus after dark. They have no husband accompanying them. Make sure they don't go to the car by themselves. Don't count on the security guard. Show cherishing for your sister in Christ. Okay, here's another one. Make an effort to learn other people's names. It takes an effort. But when you cherish someone enough that I am going to find out your name and I'm going to seek to remember your name and I'm going to try to use your name when I see you, it's like pouring cold water on a wilted plant when you call someone by name. We've been here two years, roughly, and it makes us kind of smile when we'll go to someone and say, see, see that man over there with the yellow tie? Mm-hmm. What's his name? I don't know. He's been coming for years. See, what, what's that child's name? I don't know. We want to be a community where we know each other's names. I know it's hard for some of us, but let's just make an effort. And in the greeting time, why don't you periodically go somewhere in the church sanctuary you'd never go? Because we tend to be creatures of habit. We sit where we usually sit all the time. So if you're always greeting around where you sit, you're always greeting the same people, maybe. Why don't you go to the other corner, to the person you don't know their name, and just humble yourself and say, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. How long have you been coming to Calvary Bible Church? She might say, this is my first time, or she may say, I've been coming for 10 years. Just humble yourself and say, may I know your name? And then, of course, give them your name. How do you cherish the lost person at your workplace? The person who's not a Christian, the person who even mocks Jesus Christ, who thinks it's a joke that you go to church every Sunday, how do you cherish that person? How do you cherish the person who's rooting for you to fail on the job because they don't like you, because you like Christ? 
How do you cherish someone who's your neighbor and totally likes to play their music as loud as possible, as late as possible on Saturday night so you get no sleep before you go to church? How do you cherish the person who has it out for you, although you have nothing against them? How do you cherish that person? How do you cherish the person that thinks that your beliefs in Jesus Christ are antiquated, old-fashioned, and useless? How do you cherish that person? Well, first of all, by talking to God about them and then talking to them about God in that order. Pray for them. Privately, discreetly, fervently pray for them. Talk to God about them before you talk to them about God. But then talk to them about God. How do you love a lost person who's even an enemy because they don't like your Savior? Offer your help. Offer your time. You know, we're quick to throw money at a problem. Although it may be hard for us to throw money at a problem, but sometimes it's easy to throw money at a problem and not to roll up our sleeves and get involved in a problem, especially with a lost person's problem. Offer your help. Offer your time. Can I watch your kids? Could I drive you to work? Could I look after your cat when you go to the family island? Offer your help and your time. How do you cherish a lost person? You build bridges to lost people, bridges that you are quite prepared to walk across because you will not compromise your testimony for Jesus. Golf, tennis, shopping, nature, the historical society, whatever. Walk across bridges to lost people so you can spend time with them and so that they can get to know you and you can get to know them. And then in the course of all that, relax. Just relax. You can laugh. You can tell a joke. You can just be yourself. Lost people are trying to figure out, are we real or are we a fake? Are we only loving them to get something from them or do we truly love them? Relax. Now, these are some suggestions on how we can cherish persons in our lives. Let me take a different approach. Uh, Dr. Gary Chapman had a best-selling book called The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate. It was published in 1995. It's a golden oldie, this book. And Dr. Chapman identified five love languages that cover most all of us. A love language is how you choose to love someone else and how you best receive love from someone else. A love language. There are five. Gift giving, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. Chances are you can know your own love language by how you are most prone to show love to someone else. If the first thing that you think of to show you love someone else is giving them a gift, then gift giving is probably your love language and you'll most feel love when you receive a gift. On the other hand, if you want to uh, love someone by giving quality time to them, chances are you are going to feel loved if someone else gives you quality time. That's your love language. Words of affirmation. If you feel that you uh, love someone best by telling them what you affirm to be good about them, then chances are that's your love language, and you will feel love most when they give you words of affirmation or someone else does. Acts of service. A person with the love language of the act of service loves to do something kind, known or unknown, 
And that person has that love language, feels love when someone does an act of service for them. So watch a person you want to cherish and see how they express love to others. And then you mimic that. You tick their love language and you pursue something along their love language to love them. Last uh, love language is physical touch. Uh, Physical touch involves, um, you know, just appropriate uh, touch on the hand or the shoulder or appropriate hug. Uh, uh, Many people receive love best by some kind of a physical touch. And most people who have that love language offer a physical touch in an appropriate way to someone else. Gift giving, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. Now let me wrap this up. We've been talking about the differences between men and women. We've been saying that the common, relational, fundamental, foundational need in both men and women is to be cherished. Cherishing to a woman looks like sacrificial love offered toward her. Cherishing to a man looks like respect. May we not forget that all we, all we ever can know about perfect love is from God as how he has loved us in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, a beautiful passage that shows up in many a Christian wedding, the word in verse 4 that kicks off the passage is love. That's agape. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and does, is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love. Agape love. Never fails. God has cherished us. Just look at the cross. You'll see it proven. Also, I want to leave you with a couple more reminders of God's cherishing agape love toward each of us. For God so agaped the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so discerned the greatest need in the sinning world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. Or that magnificent chapter on the love of God, Romans 8, starting at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Skipping down to 37, no. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, God cherishes you this morning. God cherishes you. May I remind us, too, that God calls us to cherish each other in the church. God calls us to cherish each other before the cross and before the church was born in John chapter 13. Just before Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was with his disciples in the upper room celebrating the Seder meal of Passover. And in John 13, 34 to 35, these are Jesus' words to his first followers and by extension to us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. The word is agape. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, loving one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Jesus Christ is saying something very significant. He's saying that for the pagan in Nassau who's unchurched, who hates the church, who hates Jesus Christ, and doesn't have any good to say about Christians, that person will be convinced that we're authentically changed by Jesus Christ to be new creations in Christ if he sees us, if she sees us loving each other. The corollary of that is also true. If the person outside of the faith doesn't see us loving each other like we ought, then they can conclude we're fakes. Imposters, hypocrites, playing games called church. It's amazing. Jesus says to us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let's love one another. Just like you need to know your wife's top three needs when you're driving home this afternoon, guys, you, it should be a fair question when you're mingling in the foyer in the parking lot any given Sunday to ask a brother or sister, what, what is the need you have in your life right now? And then if you can, do something about it. We're almost finished. That's a baby amen. The last passage I want to share with us is a love a cherishing of lost people that are enemies of the cross right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 20. I want you to think about the person that opposes your love for Jesus. Maybe you sleep in bed beside your mate and that's the person. I want you to think about the person that opposes Jesus Christ being formed in you. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your employee. Maybe it's your child. I want you to think about that person. For the love, agape, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has given he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you know who's begging will have a hearing? The person who is cherished the person they are begging to trust Christ. If you will cherish a person who's not yet Christian, you have the right to beg them then to be reconciled to God through Christ. May that be the kind of church we have. May that be the kind of church we have. 
Lord, we thank you for this message, this challenge, this encouragement. For those who are cherishing others well, spur us on to continue, not to give up. For those of us, this has been a real wake-up call. Help us to repent of selfishness and laziness and to start cherishing the people you've put into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I asked Beth to marry me in a different way. It was covered by television down in Dallas, Texas. I went by my middle name at that point in our lives, and uh, the sound is a little hard, but I think you'll catch the gist of it. I'm going to play the television story of our engagement. Well, the old saying goes, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Well, a Dallas man found a way that never made that list, and we'll show you in a moment. Dallas and Fort Worth were good places to find a job last year. According to a new real estate study, Dallas ranked first in available new jobs. Fort Worth was second, but Amarillo had the fastest growing job market. There were 5% more jobs in that panhandle city than in 1981. On the other end, Houston, Brownsville, Longview, and Midland, Odessa were the worst places to find work. Well, on a more positive note, Valentine's Day. That day we set aside each year for saying I love you in creative and romantic ways. But this Valentine's Day is one Beth Weisenhunt won't soon forget. She got the first inkling of what was in store for her when she saw the marquee outside her cleaners. Beth thought she was running an errand for her boss, picking up his cleaning from the Top Hat Cleaners. Little did Beth know that lurking inside a Top Hat laundry bin was... Yep, you guessed it, Earl Elliott, her boyfriend. Not one to be a stuffed shirt, Earl, with diamond ring and roses in hand, proposed to the young miss. What do you say, honey? <laughs> Hold the starch. Uh, wouldn't you know it, Beth said yes. And all this is testimony to the fact that conniving can pay off, as it did for Earl. It did. Okay, here's some of the stories will be coming for you tonight on Action News. A Las Vegas chef who works for a Dow Texas boss learned a valuable lesson in the Metroplex today. We'll have that story and all the day's news tonight at 10. We look forward to that. Now stay tuned for entertainment tonight. Have a good evening. That has to be the most unusual Valentine's Day proposal in Dallas. We'll explain when we come back. Thank you, Jim. President Reagan did his bit to help boost the greeting card business today. He stopped off at a Washington store to buy a Valentine card for Mrs. Reagan. And when asked if there was a Valentine for Congress among all those hearts and flowers, the president said he didn't see anything appropriate. Well, what do roses, a diamond ring, and dirty clothes all have in common? For Beth Wisenhunt of Dallas, they'll forever signify one thing, her marriage proposal on Valentine's Day, 1983. Karen Kelly, today witnessed the popping of the question. It had the intrigue of a Robert Ludlum novel, the staging of a Valentine TV special. Here's the setup. Nervous boyfriend, the guy with the laundry bag on his head, wants to make a romantic proposal. He arranges to have number one, the question popped on the marquee of a friend's dry cleaner. Number two, a scheme involving a half dozen participants, a shirt box full of roses, and planted inside a diamond engagement ring. And number three, a reason to lure his girlfriend to the dry cleaners to pick up the box. With rehearsal out of the way and a fabricated story to explain our camera, the real question question is, could it be pulled off? Oh, is it all here? It's all here. We're all Beth was surprised, a bit confused since she had just seen the marquee, and elated when she discovered the diamond and eager Earl, not on bended knee, but popping out from amongst the dirty clothes. I can't believe it. <laughs> 
The verdict is yes. Beth will marry Earl. And she certainly needed no prompting from us to deliver a kiss for the Valentine she said she'd been dreaming of. Karen Kelly, Channel 8 News. Well, it would have been a, an interesting story if she said no after all of that right. went. Said, no, she, I'm sorry. She, she, didn't let, dirty clothes. she didn't let those dirty clothes hamper her enthusiasm. <laughs> no, she didn't. Did you hear what the weatherman said? He said she didn't let the dirty clothes hamper her enthusiasm. <laughs> it was a pleasure to, to cherish Beth at that time, and it's been a pleasure to cherish her 34 years now. I'm so blessed. Next to Jesus, she's the best decision I've ever made. Thank <laughs> you.